blessing to stand in this pulpit again today on this first Sunday of Advent. For those of you who were eagerly anticipating over the last two months what a teaching in 1 Peter 3 about how women should adorn themselves might sound like in the first week of Advent, I'm here to disappoint you this morning. We will not, in fact, be continuing in 1 Peter 3, but we will be taking a break during this season to get back to the heart and the root themes of Advent, beginning this week uh, with the theme of hope. And we will be connecting that, as you can see in your bulletin, with uh, the prophetic message recorded in Isaiah 61, which is connected to the beautiful passage that Mark read for us this morning. Thank you, Mark. Before I begin, I'd like to ask you to stand, please, to honor the word of God as it is read from Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Isaiah writes, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has clothed me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. Thank you, Lord, for your living and life-giving word. May we be changed by it today. Amen. This morning, I propose three focus points for the passages that we have heard from. Number one, we will consider the prophetic message of Isaiah. Number two, we will 
take a look at a fulfillment lesson of Jesus regarding this passage. And number three, we will take a look and focus on the response of worship. Now, some of you, um, in an attempt to pass on constructive criticism to me, tell me that I need to slow down or repeat some of the things that I say so that you can accurately take notes. Um, I would encourage you this morning to listen more than you write. And if you are inclined to write things down, that's fine. By all means, do that. But I would encourage you not to try to follow the line of thought um, because you will make yourself very frustrated because I'm, I'm not going to speak slowly and repeat a bunch of things. Uh, but to, to take in listening well, the progression, okay? And then to write down perhaps what, what stands out to you. And if you really want, I'd be happy to email you the outline of, of what I teach. That, that'd be fine as well. So we're going to begin by talking about this idea of prophetic message and fulfillment, because we're going to look at the prophetic message of Isaiah and also the fulfillment lesson of Jesus found in Luke chapter 4. Um, this is a smart group, so forgive me if this is not anything that's like helpful to you, because you already knew it, uh, but I'm briefly going to jo- talk just about the concept of the prophetic message itself. I think that's wise and valuable as we take a look at a prophetic oracle or a prophetic message recorded here in Isaiah 61. The oversimplification in a lot of people's minds is that prophecy is simply a prediction of what is going to happen in the future. Oh, this thing will take place, and therefore if the prophet was acting in truth and speaking according to the word of God, then it does actually take place as it was predicted to do so. And if not, then the prophet is bad and according to the Old Testament law should be stoned to death. Okay? That is an oversimplification of prophecy because the idea of predicting what's going to happen in the future literally is about 17% of the entirety of the prophetic word that's recorded in scripture. Okay? An overwhelming percentage, an overwhelmingly larger percentage of prophecy has nothing to do actually with predicting or telling what's going to happen in the future, but in fact looking at the present and making strong statements about what is happening now. Prophecy, the prophetic message, breaks down roughly into four categories. Well, not roughly, exactly into four categories. And they can be described this way. Category number one is the idea of indictment. Okay, some of you are familiar with the legal system and you understand what the idea of indictment is. For those of you who are not, an indictment is a statement of offense. This is where God, using the voice piece of the prophet, makes a statement to indicate to a group of people that they are in fact doing wrong. And this is a significant portion of prophetic material. In excess of 20%, in fact, upwards of 30% of prophetic material is is indictment message. Goes to show you, not as though we needed the reminder, of how often we get it wrong. And we're no different than the people of God from 2,000, 3,000 years ago in getting it wrong. Secondly, the prophetic message has a category called judgment, and this is exactly what it sounds like. This is then, because you have done wrong, the punishment that is going to be carried out. Now, some of this will have a predictive measure to it, because it is, in fact, talking about something that will happen in the future. But much of it is, look out the window. Do you see the enemy army right there? Yeah, they're going to destroy you. It's imminent. Sometimes judgment is imminent 
for the people of Israel receiving the prophetic message during this time period. So we have indictment. This is what you've done wrong. We have judgment. This is the punishment that is coming. And thirdly, we have the idea of instruction. Okay, instruction is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. This is the expected behavior. This is the response that God wants from his people. Okay, sometimes the instruction comes pre-judgment. This is what I want you to do so that there can be the opportunity to avoid my hand. And then sometimes it is post-judgment. Now that you have seen the seriousness of God, let me commend you back to what you should be doing. And finally, the fourth prophetic message category is the concept of aftermath. And this is where we get that idea of prediction of the future. Because the aftermath prophecy, the aftermath message, is an affirmation of future hope, future deliverance, and it comes exclusively after judgment. Okay? This passage that we are looking at today, Isaiah 61, happens to be an aftermath message. So it is a, mas- it is a message that contains and communicates the essence of hope, hope and deliverance, which is why we're talking about it this morning on this first Advent Sunday, the Advent Sunday of hope. Secondly, I want to lay out for you a contrast of what it means for prophetic message, and then when you turn the pages into the New Testament, what we see when we're talking about fulfillment of that prophetic message. Okay, so when Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 61, what he is doing is he is speaking the authoritative word of God. He is acting as a voice piece for God. That is the the essence of what prophecy is. The prophet stands and speaks on behalf of God. The message that comes in his mouth is a message that was given by God to be delivered to a specific person or group of people at a specific time for a specific reason. Okay. Prophecy is very specific. The prophetic message is very clear. It's understood by the prophet what he is communicating. And it's guided by his objective intention. And it doesn't change. There's a surety to it. There's a concreteness to it. The prophecy is what the prophecy is. The message is what the message is. In contrast, fulfillment is quite a bit different. I'm sure that you've come across times in the New Testament where you were reading and a statement is made by the writer of the New Testament book, this took place to fulfill what was spoken of and then it jumps back to the Old Testament where the prophetic message is quoted. And I'm sure at some point you noticed like, wait a second, this seems to have nothing to do with that. Where did we get that connection from? Because that is how fulfillment tends to work. Fulfillment is not the authoritative word from God spoken with clarity. It is, in fact, the moving and unfolding of God's plan. As time moves forward and God's plan is unfolded and revealed, this is where prophecy comes into play. It's intensified, I'm sorry, it's identified by the interpreter, that New Testament author who can look back with hindsight on the message who can take in what is happening currently and say, this is definitively speaking the word of God. This is a fulfillment, a 
full unraveling, a showing and unfolding of God's plan, as we saw back when this idea was first stated by the prophet. It is subjective in in its perspective. And if we didn't believe in the full authority of God's word, this would be a place and an area where we might find doubt and there might be troubling. But we do, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed. We do believe that men spoke and they were led by God. We do believe that when they wrote, they were writing in obedience to the leading of the Spirit of God. And in so doing, we affirm that fulfillment is every bit the word of God as the original prophetic message was, though it takes a different tone and takes us in different directions. So this passage is an aftermath message the concept of future hope and deliverance here in Isaiah 61. And then in Luke 4, we will also consider the fulfillment, a fulfillment of this passage that is clarified by Jesus. Some of you are a little nervous now because you're like, I know this guy can run long and now he wants to do two different passages. Promise you it won't be that bad. Here we go. Let's start with the prophetic message in Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4. It has been read for you already, and I will not insult your ability to look at the page and see it yourself to be reminded. Let's talk about the strong start in this prophetic message. A lot of the time when you read Old Testament prophecy, it begins with something simple like, thus saith the Lord. Okay? Isaiah does not do that here. Isaiah comes in strong. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. That's a strong start. That's a whole lot more than just thus saith the Lord. And notice that in this strong start, there's actually an emphasis on the Trinity. All three persons of God are referred to, alluded to, and are part of this dynamic. We start with the spirit, okay? In the Old Testament, we see very limited work of the Spirit. We do not understand the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament the same way that we do in the New Testament. When Jesus says, one will come after me, and he will be your counselor, and he will be given to you and will abide in you, that concept was unknown in the Old Testament. When you see the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, the work of the Spirit happens um, with limited indwelling. The Spirit comes and the Spirit indwells certain persons for specific action. It's not permanent and it's there for a purpose. And when that purpose is complete, the indwelling is complete. But here we have Isaiah saying that something significant is happening. There's a strong purpose at work here because the Spirit is at work. It's not just the Spirit, it's the Spirit of the Lord God because the Lord himself has anointed me. This concept and reference of Lord God includes both the word for God in Hebrew, Adonai, and the word for God in Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh is the important one. Not that Adonai is not important. Adonai carries the idea of Lord, one who is highest, one to whom we kneel and owe our allegiance. Yahweh, though, this is the covenant name of God. It means the self-existent one. And it is important because it emphasizes the dynamic of relationship that God the Father makes with his people. So we have the Spirit who is at work. We have God the Father who is the one doing the anointing, Yahweh, the self-existent one. And then you might be wondering, well, where's the reference to Jesus? 
This concept, this word anointed, anointing, this is the declaration of Messiah. Messiah in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew word picture, is, quote, the anointed one. So when the concept of anointing is referenced here, this is a messianic call. It is a messianic concept. So we have this strong start with an emphasis on the Trinity. And it's not just a strong start for purpose for its own sake. It's a strong start and a step into specific action. Okay, so we have the voice piece of God, the prophet. It is Isaiah in this instant. He has been anointed by the Lord. The spirit is at work in him for a purpose. He is delivering a message. And this message includes specific actions. The prophet is called to specific actions, and they are as follows. Number one, he is to herald glad tidings, okay? In the ESV, it is rendered proclaim, what is it? Bring good news to the poor. Your, your scripture might say proclaim good news. Um, the, the actual Hebrew rendering there, a better translation is the idea of heralding. And this is a great time of year to talk about heralding because we, we hark some herald angels, Okay, and when those herald angels do their heralding, I assume it's not like, hey, um, I'm going to tell you some stuff about Jesus here. It's pretty exciting. Okay, when they herald, the sky lights up and there is sound that is like roaring waters and thunder and the shepherds all fall on their face like they're dead men because they have no idea what's going on. Okay, heralding means heralding. And what is the prophet to herald? He is to herald glad tidings, okay? The idea of good news. Now, we're familiar with that good news concept, and it goes a, <clears throat> a whole lot further than just like, hey, I have some happy news for you. Because the good news fulfillment that we're going to see in this passage, <clears throat> sorry, every time. The good news <clears throat> fulfillment that we're going to see in this passage, <clears throat> sorry, is in fact the good news that we are familiar with as those who are followers of Christ and belong to him and are clothed in his righteousness. <clears throat> to herald glad tidings, good news to the poor. Now this concept of poor is one that I've mentioned before when we were looking at passages in Psalms. And that is the idea of one who is in a low position, one who is humbled, one who does not have power. Okay? And that can be physical, that can be spiritual. Okay? It runs the gamut. Specific action number one, to herald glad tidings to the poor. Specific action number two, to bind up, or literally to bandage the brokenhearted. This word for brokenhearted is a word that will catch you. Okay, because it literally means this, one who is shattered in their inner man. One who is shattered in their inner man. We've had a lot go on in this church over the last year. And there are a lot of people who are dealing with a lot of difficulty, grief. There are a lot of families that are dealing with some very difficult things. There are things that would shatter us. And the promise, the beauty of this message, that the Spirit of the Lord is acting to call the one speaking the word of God <clears throat> to bandage, to bind up those who are shattered 
in their inner man. That is a beautiful thing. But that's not even it. That's just specific action number two. Specific action number three, to proclaim liberty. Now, this concept of liberty, this is the sabbatical freedom concept. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and the Sabbath year and then the year of Jubilee, there are specific rules and laws that come into play for how long somebody can remain in service, in servitude. And after so many years, all of those debts are released and all of those people who are in servitude are set free. And this is that kind of freedom that's being referenced here. There is freedom to those who are captive. Next, there is a proclaiming of the opening of the prison to the bound. Now, it's interesting because, like, of the prison, that doesn't exist in the text. That's assumed, and that's part of the translation into English for us to kind of guide our understanding. So basically, what it's literally saying is the opening to the bound. Those who are bound... There is now an opening for them, and they are free. And then we get into this interesting dynamic here, because the next two specific actions, they hinge on each other, and they're very interesting. The first one says, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. Again, the reference to God's name, his covenant-keeping, self-existent name. To proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor And then contrast that with the very next one, which is to proclaim the day of God's vengeance. Now, y'all are smart, and if I asked you to compare, which one is greater, a year or a day? That's true. Thank you. Thank you. A year is larger. A year is greater. And notice which description goes with which. And notice which name for God is called into the description. The year of the Lord's favor, that which is greater, versus the day of God's vengeance. Again, when we talked about the message, we said, understood by the prophet and guided by objective intention. It is the clear intention of the author And the clear intention of the one who reveals to show that the year of the favor of the Lord is greater than the day of the Lord's vengeance. Finally, specific action, our last one, I lost track of the numbers, to comfort. This is the idea of consolation. All who mourn. And when it says all who mourn there, what it means is literally the whole of those who mourn. None are left out. None are left on the fringe. All who mourn. And then the prophet moves into this set of beautiful exchanges. We're going to give up this for this. And the first one is this beautiful headdress. Now, this is an interesting dynamic because if you read this word in the original language, here's what it literally means. Over the bows. Like, that's what the translation, the literal translation is over the bows. So, yeah, we need some insight into where that goes. And where that goes in most of your translations is this idea of a turban, something worn on the head that was ornamental, that was sacred, that was um, special. Not something you would wear every day. Something designed to demonstrate immense beauty. Because the word also carries with it this idea of great beauty. 
That's why some translations will say they're beauty for ashes instead of this thing that you may have never heard of before, this, this headdress. But the exchange here is ashes, which if you're familiar with the mourning process for the Jewish people, one of the things that they would do is that they would go outside to wherever fires were burnt and they would take ashes and they would put those ashes on their head. They would rub them on their person and they would rip their clothing because so deep and so great was their mourning. And what the prophet is saying here is we're going to have this beautiful exchange. We're going to take this darkness of ashes related to mourning and we're going to replace it with the standard of beauty, what one would wear when they go to celebrate a wedding. Not just that, we're going to exchange the oil of gladness, this concept of anointing for worship. We're going to exchange that for mourning as well. And then finally, we're going to exchange a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Now, this word garment that's here, this is one of those words that's only found one time in the entire scripture, and it's right here. It's not the word for garment that means like your simple clothing that you put on. Well, let me take a step back. We don't dress the same way that people at this time period reading this message dressed. At this time, during this period reading this message, they wore a simple covering And then if it was colder, hopefully they had enough money to afford a cover over their initial clothing. All right? And we'll talk about that in a minute because we get to that concept of clothing. This idea of a wrap, this garment idea, it's some sort of a wrap. And most likely it has something to do with, again, dressing up communicating thanksgiving, communicating wealth, communicating importance, something having to do with praise. And what we're doing is we're exchanging the spirit of heaviness, that which is a dim or dull spirit, for a wrap, something that we cover ourselves with that expresses praise and thanksgiving. Now, all of this, these specific actions, these beautiful exchanges, This doesn't happen for the sake of so that you can feel better. This doesn't happen for the sake of so that you can show that you have nice stuff. This happens for a very specific purpose. And Isaiah tells us the purpose is to proclaim them, those who were in mourning, but have been bound up, have been bandaged, have been brought from that place of mourning to a place of oil where there is oil and joy and gladness. It's for them to proclaim, it's to proclaim them as oaks of righteousness. That's an interesting one. We do have a lot of oak trees in this area, definitely more of the pine variety as we're known in this area, but there are a lot of oak trees around here. All right, and uh, the oak trees are strong, dense wood. The word tree or oak is not actually found in the translation when it says to proclaim them oaks of righteousness. The word there is actually an adjective that indicates the idea of strong and lofty. 
But the rendering of it in translation, they chose a good word for an oak tree because an oak tree is strong. And as it grows, it can grow very lofty, pointing to the heavens as a testimony of its creator. So we who were broken, we who mourned, we who were desolate, but have been comforted and bandaged and taken care of, we may become strong and lofty pillars of righteousness. Now, let's not ever get this confused. The righteousness is not in and of ourselves in any way. If you come across the word righteousness in scripture, the very first and only thing that you should think of is Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. We are only righteous because our identity is in him. That's it. So when we are referred to as oaks of righteousness, what that means is that everything that has turned us from broken into lofty and strong is Christ. And the testimony of any kind of loftiness or strength is not what comes from us, but it is what comes from Christ and lifts us. It's part of the purpose. It's the first part, but it continues. This beautiful exchange happened so that they who were broken may be proclaimed oaks of righteousness. They are, in fact, the planting of the Lord. That just reinforces the fact that it's not us. It's not our doing. It's his garden. It's his grove. We belong to him. We are tended by our covenant creator, God. And it has a final purpose, which is this, that Yahweh, the creator God, the self-existent one, may be beautified. I know that the word says, let me find it, that he may be glorified. But it is, in fact, not the typical word for glorified. It is the same root word as we saw for beautiful headdress, that over the bows word. And it is the emphasis point of to make beautiful. So we are broken. We are bandaged. We are planted as, one who will become, as ones who will become strong and lofty in the garden of God for the ultimate purpose of causing God to be beautified so that beauty may be reflected properly to God. What defines these people, what defines us, is not our brokenness, but rather his care and his standing before the Father. And then there's something that they're to do with that. If you look at the next verse, they then shall renew and restore that which was laid waste, these places of desolation. They will become, we will become, we who have been broken but bandaged, restored, grown as oaks of righteousness, the testimony of Christ himself. We will become partakers in God's beautiful work of making all things new. Now, bear with me for a second, because I want to take a look at this in a little bit of detail. What is the purpose, especially for the people of this time period, what is the purpose of a strong and lofty tree? I mean, today, if you're like my family and you like to go visit beautiful places, state parks, national parks, 
It's one thing to sit back and to take in the beauty of the landscape, including the beautiful trees, and to just appreciate them for their own existence. But for people living during this time period, they would be way more pragmatic about those sorts of things. And so for them, what's the value of a lofty and strong tree? How can strong and lofty trees cause God to be beautified? Well, there is beauty in their being, like we would watch and look at and just be amazed by and say, well, this, this points to a creator God. There is beauty in their being, but there's also beauty in their purpose. Because the purpose of a tree, ultimately, especially for these people back then, would be to be cut down and used proactively, used to build, used to rebuild, used to strengthen. And so the connection between being oaks of righteousness tended to in the garden and grove of the creator God, but also having the purpose of renewing and restoring that which was desolate and laid waste means that there is both beauty in the loftiness of drawing attention to God because we are righteous through Christ, but also there's beauty in the strength to rebuild what was destroyed. There's righteousness and renewal. The oaks of righteousness are beautiful both in what they do in pointing people to God, a testimony of the righteousness of Christ, but also in their usefulness to help rebuild what was destroyed. Keep in mind that the oaks of righteousness, that's us. What role do we have in helping to rebuild that which was destroyed? We're now going to shift a little bit and take a look at the concept of fulfillment. I know we haven't worked all the way through the Isaiah passage yet, but we will get there, I promise. Mark read for us from Luke chapter 4. I'm not going to reread that passage, but I am going to call you back to a couple of the ideas that are there. A couple of considerations from what happens in Luke chapter 4. Number one, when Jesus is handed the scroll in Luke chapter 4, he opens it to Isaiah 61. That's impressive enough because uh, chapter and verse divisions, those don't exist until, you know, several hundred years ago. So when Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah, which let me tell you is a large scroll, um, he goes to find specifically this passage with no help from chapter and verses. So, I mean, that's not really a surprise that the author of the word, the word himself, could find the right place in the word of God. But still, I just want to point out that that's an impressive thing. Jesus starts reading in Isaiah chapter 61, and he stops reading literally halfway through verse 2. He just puts the brakes on instantly halfway through verse 2, right in the middle of the sentence, right in the middle of the thought. Now, I went to Bible school. Okay, I studied and took classes on biblical interpretation and preaching, and I can tell you that stopping in the middle of the verse and not even finishing the thought is generally discouraged. Okay, it's generally frowned upon, like not a good hermeneutic, not a good Bible study technique. Um, so why would he do this? Why, why would Jesus do that? Well, let's review what we see and what we know. What do we know about Jesus? Well, we know that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. We know that he is proclaiming a message of glad tidings, which is literally the good news. We know that he is bringing healing and liberty 
to those that are broken because of their sin. But if you look at where he stops his reading, we know that it is not yet his time to bring God's vengeance. There is, in fact, a second coming and a series of events connected to the second coming where this idea will come into play. And so he stops reading before the proclamation of God's vengeance. What he's doing is he's drawing a distinction between what is present tense fulfillment and what is yet still to come. Now, what that doesn't mean is that, well, everything then that comes after Isaiah 61 2a is still future tense and nothing that we can claim for today. We know that that is not the case because we live in a world of already but not yet fulfilled. Already we receive these things. Already we have received these, these, these great exchanges. Already we receive blessing, but we do not yet know the fullness of that blessing, the fullness of that exchange, the fullness of righteousness, the fullness of what it means to be an oak of righteousness. We're, we're kind of in the sapling stage, right? But saplings are still useful. We, we are not yet in the fullness of this. Consideration number two. In the Luke 4 passage, Jesus goes beyond reading the glad tidings and speaking well of the glad tidings in Isaiah 61. And he starts talking about some unpleasant history as it relates to the Jewish people. And he goes out of his way to create some conflict. Again, I went to Bible school and um, it was also discouraged to unnecessarily create conflict in the way that you deliver the word of God. Um, The gospel itself is offensive enough. We do not need to go out of our way to create more conflict. So why would he do this? Why would he literally create conflict in his communication with these people of Nazareth? Well, let's look back at Isaiah 61, verses 5 through 9. And this is where we'll jump into that section. Isaiah says in the prophetic message, Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak to you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, now pay attention here, because watch what happens with pronouns. There's a significant pronoun shift. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them. They are an offspring the Lord has blessed." There is a significant shift between you and they in this passage. There is a distinction. The you, the you is Isaiah's Jewish audience. The they is the Gentiles. Because in the fullness of understanding the good news, what we know with the benefit of future revelation and hindsight 
is that this is consistent both with the Old Testament teaching of the nations of the earth, all of them being blessed through the covenant with Abraham. But it's also consistent with the New Testament teaching that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, that we are one in Christ. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is preparing them for the fullness of the good news, the glad tidings, healing, liberty, consolation to people, not just of Israel, but of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And he is testing them to see if they are truly broken in their spirit because of their sin. Are they truly poor in spirit? And unfortunately for the people of Nazareth, they are not. Instead, they prefer to destroy the one who is the good news. Ponder that for a minute. Now, in sharp contrast to the people of Nazareth from Luke 4, we have Isaiah concluding his passage in verses 10 and 11. And here for us is the response of worship, the only appropriate response when confronted with the good news and glad tidings. Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The language here is pretty cool. When he says greatly rejoice in verse 10, it's actually a double Hebrew word. So he throws the Hebrew word out there twice. It's exalt, exalt. Again, kind of harkens back to the uh, heralding. Not just a, okay, yes, praise the Lord. I'm very excited. God has done great things. No, this is exalt, exalt. This is high worship. Greatly exalt Yahweh, the personal covenant creator God. And then he says, my soul, that which makes me alive, will rejoice in my God. Because he has two things. Clothed me in the garments or coverings of salvation. And number two, covered me with the robe of righteousness. Let's pause for a moment and talk about robes. Okay. At this time, who wore robes? you go back and you look there are basically two categories of people that wore robes kings because they had the wealth to do so and priests because it was part of their calling it was part of their worship if we have been clothed with robes of righteousness what does that mean has been imputed onto us In Christ, there is kingship, and in Christ, there is a priesthood. And if we are in Christ wearing the robes of his righteousness, the robes of his salvation, those blessings are imputed to us as well. Notice, though, the role that he plays. Notice the role that is played by the prophet in receiving these gifts. 
does, is he handed the robes and he puts them on himself. Is that how it's stated in the, in the passage? No. No. He is clothed. Okay. I did not grow up wealthy. And I have had the privilege of being in a couple of weddings before that required me to go to the tuxedo shop. One of the most uncomfortable things is the whole dynamic of somebody else putting clothes on me. Now, I imagine if I grew up very wealthy and I had a personal attendant who would come and clothe me every day, I wouldn't feel that way, okay? But I didn't grow up that way. And it is a little weird for someone else to put clothes on you. That's how I felt. But in this scenario, what's being said here is that there is a, there, there's an action of honor being bestowed upon this one. Because to be dressed by another shows that you are being honored. And it also shows you can't do it yourself. The robes aren't yours. You can't put them on yourself. You have to be honored in such a way so that this gift is given to you. And the clothing itself, described as righteousness and salvation, the clothing itself is Christ. We literally wear Christ. The wedding imagery is significant. Because again, with hindsight and the, the ability to know what comes down the line, we know that the ultimate culmination of being in Christ is described in wedding terms. Great celebration, great honor. And it is only those who are clothed appropriately who partake in that celebration. So to finish this, I want to go back and I want to draw your attention to how it starts. To begin Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet writes, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. And then I want to cause you to go down to the bottom and look at how it ends. For as the earth brings forth sprouts and gardens cause what is sown to sprout up, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. Put it together. The personal covenant creator God has anointed the Messiah to bring the good news that he, the personal covenant creator God, will cause righteousness, that which is the expression and reality of Jesus, righteousness and praise, praise, this appropriate response to the good news, will cause those things to spring forth in the sight of all mankind. Now let me ask you, what is this that was planted that sprouts forth in God's provision? What is this that he causes to plant and be sprout forth? And I'm going to bring you back to the idea of the oaks of righteousness. So to conclude Isaiah 61, when the prophet writes, as the earth brings forth sprouts and as the garden causes what it's sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. It is us, the oaks of righteousness. We were poor, broken, captive, but we were bandaged, freed, comforted. We were clothed with garments of salvation and our identity is in Christ. We are those who sprout up. We are those who proclaim righteousness. We are those who lift up praise. Let us make sure that we proclaim the beauty of righteousness.
Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, you are the self-existent one. You are the personal covenant-keeping creator God. Thank you for clothing us in garments of salvation, for growing us to be demonstrations of the good news. You have given us Christ, who is our righteousness and salvation. In him is all hope. Apart from him is nothing. Please lift us up and bind us when we are broken. Comfort us in our mourning. Move us by your spirit to praise and exalt you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we ask this. Amen. testing the mic there. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. It's our joy and pleasure once per month to um, celebrate and remember, speak about communion, and uh, take communion with the Lord. And uh, each time, I think I've shared with you that I, I think about it, I meditated a long time, like, what, Lord, what do you want me to say this week? What, what would you have me to speak on? And uh, he reminded me of a story in my life that happened when I was five years old. I was asking Eli Minjabar, are you here? Could he come up here, please? He said he would. Come over here. Isn't he a cute little man? He's love this guy. Eli is eight years old. And uh, when I was, well, let me tell you this. I was born at an early age in Mount Vernon, Texas. It's about 75 miles to this way. Uh, some of you older guys know Don Meredith was from there. That's the only reason that town is even known for anything. But um, we moved from there to Florida. My dad had us move a lot of different places with his job. And so we moved to Gainesville, Florida. And, uh, but my grandfather came, got on a bus from Mount Vernon, it's about a thousand miles there, and he rode this bus to Gainesville, Florida, where I lived, and I was between five and six, so I probably wasn't this big, and I remembered him coming, and I had three brothers, so there's four of us boys, and he gave, as far as I know, he gave each one of us one, but he gave me a silver dollar, a silver dollar, and I don't know if these kids have ever seen one. They're, they're about that big. They're like a quarter, like four times the size of a quarter. And back then they were worth quite a bit. You could, you could buy something pretty good with it. And uh, so after my grandfather left, I took that silver dollar and I'd never had any money. I hadn't any money. And I walked down the street to a, a yard sale. And the word has it, my brothers remember it, I came home sold my, traded my silver dollar, get this, for a pine cone. <laughs> Florida's kind of like this. They have pine trees, and I, I don't know, I don't remember it being anything special. It just, you know, how much you want for that? I got this. Well, we'll take that for that. And so I came home with a pine cone, okay? 
Probably the worst purchase. My wife might argue that. I've probably made the worst ones. Worst purchase I've ever made. So thank you for that. I wanted to share that. And the reason is because God wants us to be people of humility. When I think about coming to this table, we have to come with humility. Everything Chris just preached about Isaiah writing that a few thousand years before Jesus is born and comes and, and does all these for us, the mystery of Christ. But we spoke about it today, how we got to be here. How did we get to be here? Why are we in this room who believe in Jesus Christ? And others, even of my brothers, do not. Um, why is that? And it's a mystery of God, but there was a, there was a thing in times past, the... Uh, and I'm not going to get deep into a long sermon because Chris did a great job in, uh, and left me a little time. But the, uh, the doctrine of election is so important to know that we were not anything special. And matter of fact, I'm going to give you a, Romans 3 here. We're going to hear what God had to pick from. How He picked you and me. Okay? Romans 3. Start with verse 9. What then... This is so that we can know that we're... Be humble. Just listen to this. And listen to this. I was thinking about the metaphor of the pine cone. I mean, that pine cone was dead. It, it was just a brown pine cone. I didn't remember it being green. It sure wasn't hooked to the tree. It was a dead pine cone. And picture us like a pine cone. I mean, that, the gift, of, the price that was paid way, way, way overpaid. And... The price he paid was way, 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 way more than he should have paid for me. A dead pine cone. But he turns us into righteous oaks, pine trees also. Listen to this. This is what God chose from. This is what the Father chose from to pick you and me out. And if anyone in here is not in Christ yet, just realize... Don't think you're disqualified because, listen, this is where Christians got picked out of. People that believe in the Lord, they believe in the Lord and they're righteous because Christ gave us the faith. We're saved by grace through faith. That faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest we could boast about it. But here's, the, here's, here's what it is. Would you pick any of these people if you were a holy, righteous God? What then? Are we better than they? Talking about the Jews. Knowing in no wise, for we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. What percent is that? 100? 100%. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. What percent is that? They are all gone out of the way. What percent is that? They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is where we got picked out of, y'all. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's verse 18. Let's stop right there. With the men that are going to come help, please come. Okay. I did have eight. We have had some sickness in the church, so I may have one. All right. Come ahead, fellas, and uncover. Thank you. While they're folding, that little sermonette there, that is just to know that we should be the most humble people. Understanding the doctrine of election, God did not look down the quarters of time to see me doing good and said, I can help that guy. I can work with that. Thank you. He didn't say, I can work with that guy. Let's pray. Lord, why you ever chose me? And I know each one in this room would say the same thing. Why you ever chose me, who had no righteousness, who was not clothed in righteousness of Christ, as we just heard. That's what righteousness means. How you did it, Lord. During this season, Lord, I ask you to help us to be humble. Lord, we are humbled and and very humbled to know that we can partake of your holy symbol of your body here, the bread. And so we thank you for that. Jesus, amen.